Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land. Treaty was never made in Australia. Now, today on the show, I'm joined by a special guest. Brianna Devlin is a 2SER producer. You can catch her on Drive, and you will, uh, well, you will get to know more of her here at Final Draft. Brianna, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Andrew. How are you going? Thanks for having me here. It is an absolute pleasure. And uh, look, this is Final Draft, so you have brought in a book for us. What have you been reading? Well, I have been reading is the memoir. I don't know if you've heard of it, Andrew. It's called Honey Blood. It's by Kirsty Everett. It sounds really gripping and really like it's a, it's a one of those sad but inspirational stories. Well, you're right, Andrew. It is an inspirational memoir. So it is about Kirsty, who was diagnosed with leukemia at nine, and she also relapsed at sixteen. So it's about her life, her experiences going through cancer as a young child and adolescence, and just her journey through that with her family as well. Now, you've had an absolutely fantastic chat with Kirsty, and we're going to be presenting it over a couple of parts. What are we going to hear today in part one? Well, part one, you're going to be hearing about the reasoning behind her writing the book. She felt an urgency to write it just because of her experiences. You'll learn more about that. And you'll also learn about her experiences when she was younger. She was also on track to be an Olympic um, gymnast. So, and that was obviously cut short because of her diagnosis. And you'll also learn about how she discovered the diagnosis as well. Today on Final Draft Great Conversations, Brianna is presenting for us Kirsty Everett's Honey Blood. So join us as we discover that incredible memoir. The very first time that I even got the idea to write a book about this stuff, I was actually... 17 years old and I wanted to do the writing classes because pretty much um, everybody thought I was going to die and I thought, oh, maybe I should write some things down Um, and obviously I didn't die and I kind of got on with life and then an opportunity came up a few years ago and just things kind of aligned and I thought this is always something that I thought you know, I need to do this. It's a collection of stories of significant things that, you know, when they happened at the time, they were things that was just like, oh my goodness. You know, sometimes those things happen in life and you think, I will never forget this day. Like this is going to stay in my mind. Um, So it is a collection of some of those really significant moments. And I wrote the book for a lot of reasons. Um, But I guess one of them is I, I lost a lot of friends who also had cancer and I obviously couldn't write about all of them um, because I'm not sure anybody would want to read that. That would be absolutely dreadful. Um, but, you know, I actually, in my heart, I'm really, really hoping that the parents of some of these children who, you know, they died, you know, over, you know, 30 years ago, 
I'm really hoping that their parents, that the book reaches them and um, that they can know that I will not forget um, those people, those friends of mine that were there with me. Um, yeah, if, if there's anyone that I would want it to reach, I would want them to, to know that I have not forgotten and I never will. Um, and I hope they're happy with how I've depicted, um, yeah, their children who, yeah, they, they didn't get to make it and I did and it's not fair. Um, but yeah, I got to bring them back to life for a little while in the book, which was really hard, but it was something that I also think was really, um, I, I felt like it was necessary to do that as well, to kind of help to educate people and to raise awareness. And World Cancer Day, it's not a day where they're kind of hustling to get money or donations. It's just a day to raise awareness about all different types of cancers, like not just, you know, like, um, you know, childhood cancers. It's, you know, for skin cancer and making sure you get your breast checked. And so that's why the day is important. It's just this big day where it's like, let's all take a moment and everybody knows somebody with cancer or... Um, so yeah, that's why the date's like really important to me, I guess. Let's go back to the beginning before your diagnosis at nine. Yeah. And you can tell me as much as you can. Yeah. In terms of gymnastics, in the press release I, um, I was sent, it mentioned that you're on track to become an Olympian. Yeah. Yeah, I was. Um, so people probably think, oh my gosh, that's, that's so young. Like, how could you? You know, but but that's actually quite um, it's quite a normal age. Um, I like, and I'm happy to share this because it's. I mean, it is in the book, but it's fine. And I just um, I did something the other day where they just wanted some more details. So I got into gymnastics when I was four years old. Which, um, if you want to be an Olympic gymnast, that's the age that you do it. Um, I do want to make a point that I didn't have parents that were pushing me to do it. Um, it was all me. Um, I saw it on the television and just kind of went, oh my gosh, I want to do that. I want to be that. Like I, you know, I saw the girls in their like leotards and doing somersaults and I was like, that looks amazing. And I had those kind of parents that always let, you know, us kids kind of, you know, we could have a go at whatever we wanted to. If we wanted to commit to it, we could. And yeah, I they found like a place. I I think they had to tell a little fib. I think I was supposed to be, I think I was supposed to be five, but they might have said I was a little bit older because I was so excited to do it. Um, and yeah, so I started that from the age of four. And yeah, when I was eight years old, um, I was representing New South Wales. Um, like I represented like the state on more than one occasion. Um, I never came home without a medal and, um, and yeah, so, uh, you know, in Sydney there's not, um, you know, it's not like other countries in the world where um, sometimes gymnastics is all that the girls do. Um, so there's not sort of many people that kind of, I mean, we do have them, but um, a lot of, I remember there being a lot of coaches and people would come up to my mum and be like, oh, you know, we want to train your daughter. We want her to come here. We want her to, like, train with us, um, you know, and, and I was just having fun. But, um, yeah, I remember starting to think, oh, well, maybe when I grow up, like, I could go to the Olympics. Like, this is this is possible. And, and I had people telling me that. I had coaches telling me um, that I stood out. And, you know, at the time, like, you don't, 
you know, you don't really think about it. But in hindsight, um, and especially too for the book, I had to go back and um, had to look, find some photos of some gymnastics. And it was really interesting. I didn't even notice um, my editor, um, Mary Rennie at HarperCollins pointed it out. There's this photo and there's a whole line of girls all doing the splits. And she said, can you tell that you're the only one who's doing them perfectly in this lineup? And I looked at it and I went, I'd never noticed that before. Like I'd never, you know, um, it looked like my body sort of was built for it. And you know how sometimes you can step outside and look at yourself like it's not quite you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wow, that that looks kind of impressive. <laughs> so, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I actually did gymnastics, but I got into it quite later. So, yeah, when you said four, that's a very common age. And it's good to know that your parents didn't push you or anything. But I guess how many hours were you doing at that age? Were you quite com- – well, you said you were doing it for fun, so maybe you weren't as competitive. Did you have that competitive drive? Yeah, I definitely did and was and still am sometimes um, – like a perfectionist as well. So, I mean, I, I think the sport lends itself really well to people that are sort of driven and perfectionist. So I used to, um, I think I used to go four afternoons a week. Um, so I didn't go on Fridays, but I went Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Like I went every afternoon, like after school. Um, and then we used to train um, all day on Saturdays as well. Like they would give you a break um, in the middle. Um, but yeah, it was, yeah, so that's five days a week. Yeah, I've never tallied it up like that. Um, but, yeah, that, that's how often it was. Um, and, yeah, there was yeah, they, there was a coach who was, like, super, super strict and scary. Um, not sure she'd be able to coach kids now. I remember her, like, smoking cigarettes and, like, yelling at us. Oh, yikes. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't think I put that in the book. <laughs> um, and, yeah, and there was, like, a you know, a nicer coach who, um, yeah, but we had this, yeah, this sort of older lady and she was Russian and, yeah, she was really scary. So, um <laughs> Yeah, you wanted to make sure you got things right for her. Did you specialise in like uh, floor, bar, beam? Did you have a particular? So I I didn't specialise. I had to do, you had to do everything at Mm -hmm. that age. They make you do everything. But my favourites were uh, the floor and the bars were my strengths. Um, My weakness was always the beam. Um, The vault, I was okay. But yeah, floor and bars, I was best at. Um, But yeah, at that age, they they make you do absolutely everything. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. What did you love about them? Um, I don't know. There was something with the floor. um, There was just something really cool about the fact that you could just start running and then throw your body into something, you know, and make your body just do that. And there's no equipment. There's nobody holding you. I mean, obviously, when you learn the tricks, there's people spotting you. But there was something just so really cool and just, I don't know, just like extremely kind of like joyous about the fact that your body could just, you know, if you trained right and you made your body strong, you you could just start running. And, you know, I remember friends saying, oh, do a somersault, do a flip, like, and you just, you would just do it. Mm -hmm. And it was like this high. And, um, yeah, I liked, I liked the bars too. Um, I liked the height of it. A lot of people have a fear of heights. They're a bit, um, which, you know, I, I get that. We all have our things that we're afraid of. But with the bars, um, I liked the way it felt when your body sort of 
built the momentum um, and you would spin and spin and twist and, like, you would have to let go. You would have to, like, know when to hold on. Um, yeah, there was just, yeah, something really really amazing about it. When you look at it on TV, it looks so easy and it looks so fun just to throw yourself around. <laughs> I know, and, right? <laughs> and I guess it's also very, very rewarding. I know for me, I, disclaimer, everybody who's listening, I was not at Olympian level, not nowhere near it. That's okay. But I, it's all the training you do and that training is so necessary in terms of building up, you know, your core, your arms, your legs and that. And then to do a trick, it feels so rewarding and satisfying. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, um, yeah, someone, I think yesterday someone said to me, they're like, well, can you still do any tricks? And I said, I'm actually not sure. And I would maybe be a little bit scared to try. Like someone said, can you do a cartwheel? And I was like, I don't know. And now I want to try, but I'm like, oh, I'm a little bit scared. Like, I I don't know. I'll probably end up pulling something. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What led to your first diagnosis at nine? Did you notice something? Did you feel something was wrong? Yeah, I did. Um, I um I felt I felt really tired all the time and I did kind of think I, I was doing a lot of training and there was actually um around the time I was diagnosed that's actually a it's a time of year where there are a lot of competitions. So I you know, I was really tired but was sort of thinking, Oh well, you know, I'm really pushing my body and um, wasn't eating much, um, not because anybody was controlling anything like that, um, but just had no appetite. Um, my skin looked a bit yellow. I had a lot of bruises, but, you know, would sort of think, oh, I've got bruises from gymnastics, like you throw your body around. Um, but, yeah, I, I did feel like something was wrong and that I was sick, but it was it was unlike any kind of sort of sick I had felt before like as a kid you know how you get ear infections or a little tummy bug or whatever it felt like something quite quite sinister like obviously I can say that in hindsight but at the time I just was like oh I don't feel so good um and yeah I do describe in detail um in the book um like the day where it sort of all came to a head and my body just yeah, completely kind of um, and yeah, obviously had to go to hospital and and then found out, yeah, why my body did feel so and it wasn't it wasn't the gymnastics that was making me feel bad. Did you have any idea of what it was? I guess, did you know anyone who had cancer? Were you exposed to it in terms of family or other people you knew? So yeah, the only the only thing that I knew about cancer was that I I had an uncle. He was this really lovely man um, and he had died of cancer. And, um, yeah, I remember when I was told um, the, the professor looking after me, um, Professor Darcy O'Gorman-Hughes, he, he's not alive anymore, but he helped create the Children's Cancer Institute and he was an incredible man and he sat down and explained everything to me and, you know, wasn't talking to my parents. He, he was talking to me um, and he explained what was wrong. He explained that he was helping other patients with the same type of cancer. Um, I think he was remarkable at, at doing what he did. And so I understood that 
it was serious. I understood um, there was obviously, you know, once I heard the word cancer, um, I was like, oh, hang on, you know, my Uncle Ken, he died of that. Hang on, wait, wait, what's going on here? But then, yeah, when my professor, you know, explained, you know, uh, that he could make me better and that he'd treated other patients, um, and, you know, it, he spoke to me as an equal. He was not patronising at all. Um, and I thought, okay, like, I I need to trust this grown-up man. He's wearing a, a three-piece suit and he's got glasses on and he, he seems like he knows what he's doing. And so I, yeah, as much as there was that, oh, I could die from this, I was like, oh, my chances sound pretty good. And I think he even told me that my chance was around um, 70%, like the, my chances of surviving. And I thought, oh, if I got 70% on a test, I'd probably be pretty happy with that. So, you know, I can probably get this done. <laughs> you're you're so young, only nine. It, it would have been so hard for him to try and explain because you would have wanted to understand. Yeah. And, um, yeah, he, like, yeah, like I said, a remarkable man, like, to be able to explain cancer and chemotherapy and and to explain that to a nine-year-old um that that's quite impressive I think for for anybody to to do but obviously that was you know his field of expertise um but yeah I'm so grateful and will always be grateful that that he was the man that looked after me um the first time that I was treated um I was in very good hands and I always yeah I always felt that yeah, he was doing everything he could to make sure that I would be okay. So, yeah, very lucky. <laughs> but I often laugh because I I forget that for me a lot of the stuff was this was my normal. When I was, you know, on those two and a half years of chemo, it was my normal. It was what I knew. But, yeah, some of the feedback that I've got um, from people that have read the work, they're like, oh, my goodness, you, you really tell us, like, exactly what happens and, um, you know, how there's different types of chemo, like, you know, there's tablets, there's intravenous treatment. Um, I had to have a lot of um, chemotherapy. Um, they call it intrafecal, which means it's injected into your spinal column. So I do give a lot of those details. Um, so I understand there might be some people, I know there's people that have needle phobias and things like that. Um, my mother-in-law, um, she got a little bit upset she's like you could have warned me about chapter one because chapter one I kind of throw the reader uh, straight into it um but you know in some ways I think you know there are people that are often curious about you know we know that chemo is this horrible thing and people end up bald and their hair falls out but for some people it is this sort of oh, what's this kind of mystical treatment that you get? Like, what exactly happens? So, I certainly tell you plenty of detail about it, um, but it's not um, you don't you don't need to be a scientist to understand it. I worked really hard with my editor to make sure that everything's really clear. So, if someone knows nothing, you know they'll be fine. Um, and if there's people that already have a little bit of knowledge about what goes on they'll be okay as well. Um, and also, yeah, the book's got other things in it besides, even though it is a book about, um, you know, me having cancer twice, um, there's lots of other stuff that goes on too. So it's not like you're going to be reading a book that's like, oh gosh, you're, you're trapped in hospital hearing these like horror stories or scary, you know, it's 
it's not like that the whole way through. There's there's all sorts of things and yeah, there's there's stuff that will make you laugh and that as well. So it's it's not depressing and it's not yeah, it, it won't take you into a dark place. <laughs> Can you tell me about those years when you were cancer free? Oh my gosh. So what was totally awesome about those those years of remission were so I sort of finished I finished up treatment kind of towards the end of grade six which meant when I went along to high school, I wasn't going to be the girl at school with cancer because I was going to a school with, I think, only like one or two people from my own primary school. So I thought, this is so great. Like, I'm going to a school. I'm not the cancer girl here. I can just do whatever. Um, And, yeah, those, you know, four and a bit years of remission, I, I did what people always get told to do in life which is you're supposed to live life to the full and do as many things as you possibly can and that's exactly what I did I was absolutely elated I was ecstatic just to be alive I feel sorry for my poor parents trying to keep up with me and all the things I wanted to do Um, you know I did singing lessons I did dancing lessons um I didn't go back to gymnastics but I did acrobatics I started doing um Shakespeare I started spending time in the theater I'm at school I did public speaking debating I joined the SRC um I went skydiving I went swimming with sharks I just yeah it was almost like I'm really, really hungry, like for life, and I just want to do as many things as I possibly can, make as many friends as I possibly can. Um, I was just absolutely, yeah, totally ecstatic just to exist and to have survived. And after spending those two and a half years and, you know, losing friends and being in pain and suffering and having to push and push and like stay positive. Um, it was just so exciting just to just to be alive. We honestly known as the cancer girl at school. Yeah, yeah. There's um there's a chapter in the book. There uh there was like bullying and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, I I definitely was the can like I obvious I, I get what you're saying. Like, was it just in my head? Um, I even had. Um, an old friend from high school recently tell me, oh, that, that was like your label, you know. I'm like, oh, well, thank you for confirming that for me. Goodness me. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, there was bullying. Um, and the thing with that is, um, I mean, look, I think all children bully each other and um, I think the issue with bullying is that adults bully each other as well. We're mm-hmm. always trying to fix bullying in children, but... Um, the issue is that adults bully each other, so it's. Um, I'm not sure if the world's ready to acknowledge that maybe that's why that cycle of bullying exists is because people of all ages do it. Um, but the bullying that I received, it was often um, children saying to me, my mum told me you're going to die. My mum told me not to play with you, um, you know, things like that, um, which... To me, I mean, obviously, it's you know, it probably sounds awful, um, but to me, you know, if people are saying that to their children, I feel like they're, I guess that's one of the reasons why something like World Cancer Day that raises awareness, I think that's where I'm like, hang on, this is important um, because obviously there is a need for people to have some knowledge about about cancer um, because, you know, saying something like that to your child, like telling them not to play 
with another kid at school because they have cancer. Obviously, that person um, is coming from a place where they maybe need a little bit of knowledge. Um, they obviously, you know, fear is a really big motivator for people saying the wrong thing. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't have any sort of, you know, feelings of animosity towards, you know, any of those things. Like people, you know, when they're afraid, they that's usually when you're going to see some nasty things come out in people is when, when they're scared. So, yeah, it's it's sad, but it is one of the realities um, that I kind of had to deal with. So it did end up in the book. Um, and, yeah, I might, yeah, there's a chapter. Yeah, I, I might flag a chapter specifically for you to avoid if you like because there was a really, really bad incident of bullying that um, involved some physical violence. So... Um, I wanted to include that. So it was a hard one to write, but um, I thought it sort of needed to be in there. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Why do you think you jam-packed your diary so full of everything? Well, I think think I'd kind of learnt that, you know, like I was saying, like that lesson that, you know, life, like it is meant to be lived. Well, that's, that's how I feel anyway after obviously... Um, you know, the things that happen to us, like they help to shape us and what we feel is the right way to kind of walk through life. And yeah, I, you know, after having cancer at such a young age, I just thought to myself, you know, if, if I am alive, it's sort of my duty to to do as many things as I can, to read as many books as I can, to make as many friends with as many different types of people, you know, whether they were older, younger, you know, whoever they were. Um, it was almost, yeah, like cancer had sort of, you know, people often say, oh, cancer taught me a lesson. So I, I kind of don't like that cliche a bit. But in some ways, I guess that's what did kind of transpire was that I learnt, um, yeah, at a very young age that, yeah, you should probably pack as much as you can into your life because, you know, things like cancer can happen. And I think I just felt really lucky to be alive. And it was like I wanted to show the whole world I really, really appreciate that I am still here. That's it for this great conversation with Kirsty Everett, also featuring Brianna Devlin. Brianna, thank you so much for joining us on Great Conversations. Thank you, Andrew. It's still a pleasure to be here. Now, if anyone wants to find out more of Brianna's work at 2SER, just go to 2SER.com and you can search for Brianna Devlin. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people and it broadcasts on 2SER on the lands of the the Eora Nation. The show is produced and presented today by Brianna Devlin. Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can look for at Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe in your podcast app. There will be a new great conversation every week. And there's a special part two coming up of Brianna's conversation with Kirsty Everett. I'm Andrew Popel, and I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.